All right, welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Sean McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we are excited to have Damian Schenkelman on the pod. Damian is currently principal architect at Okta and was employee 10 at Auth0. Welcome to the show, Damian. So why don't we just start off with your story? How'd you get to become the principal architect at Okta? So I, I joined Otsido in, in 2014. I was finishing university back in Buenos Aires before I was, I was doing consulting work for a company that did a lot of consulting projects for Microsoft, particularly Microsoft Dev Tooling, some hands-on labs, some practices stuff. And, and I was really looking forward to, to doing some product work. I wanted to, do, to also be able to work from Argentina, so I didn't really want to move. And, and Matias is someone I knew from my previous company. Matias is the, the CTO and, and co-founder of Otsido. So I basically reached out and said, hey, are you, are you folks hiring? And, and I joined. And, and ever since, again, I got to join the core backend team back then. Again, we were a few engineers doing a bit of everything. After that, I was director of engineering for a while, working with both our kind of platform teams and our product teams. And... After that, I kind of like positioned back in that engineering management back to a principal engineer, kind of like slash architecture role and, and have been doing some of that ever since. So can you describe a little bit about what exactly Auth0 does for those who don't know? Yeah, happy to. So if you think about it from kind of like a non-technical perspective, every company that develops a product where it's a website or, or a mobile app, they need to implement login capabilities. And login is essentially having a username and a password or, or any, any type of credentials that allow users to log in. Now, developers working for those companies need to implement those capabilities in the product. This is something that you typically see. For example, if someone has seen an application that uses either Google for login or Instagram for login, but it's not really Google or Instagram, it's something else. You're, you're kind of like connecting your app so that it can authenticate users from those sources and use them as you don't. And that's a process that requires some security expertise, depending on kind of like the complexity. It requires tuning because you might have threats and you might have anomalies and you might have to, you might want to use multiple factors. And, and there's kind of like a bunch of things that get more complex, the more complex your application grows. And what Otsiro does is simplify that kind of like identity for consumer apps and for B2B SaaS. So you mentioned authentication there. A lot of people, I think, have this question. They, they hear, well, they, they mostly hear auth, right? And then that could mean authentication. That could mean authorization. So can you explain a little bit more about the difference between those two? When you think about identity, there are, there are a number of things to, to consider, but a couple of, of the important ones are authentication and, and authorization. Authentication is figuring out who you are, who the user is, or, or who a computer is in a system. Example, that might be asking for a username and a password, or asking for web of N device authentication, something that says, hey, I have trust in who you are. It might even be a certificate if you're using, for example, mutual TLS. Once you know who someone is, you can start asking other questions. And one of those questions is, what can they do on a system? And that's when you think about authorization. So if you think about systems, you typically see that maybe surface in the notion of a role and a permission, but you might also see it surface in other ways. For example, when, when you use some of the B2B collaboration apps like Google Docs or Figma, 
you can share specific projects or specific boards or specific documents with someone and you don't do it because of the role you just do it to say, hey, this person can, can look at this thing. And, and that's kind of like the separation between authentication and authorization, who you are and, and what you can do. And it sounds like they sort of go hand in hand. Like you could start off building one part of the product. You know, you could start off just saying, hey, we're going to solve authentication. But then over time, presumably, you know, the authorization component would be something that you would like to layer on. Would you agree with that? Or how do you kind of think about the two of those working within, you know, startups and, and companies? I think... It depends on whether you're building kind of like a consumer app or or, or a, a B2B app. But if you think about consumer apps, you need to authenticate users so that they, you know who they are. But depending on your use case, your authorization might not necessarily need to be the best. Like, you, for example, if you think about a lot of the social media initiatives, like just the people you follow. And after a while, they start adding things like your friends or circles, things like that, where you, like, you have another level of control over, over who you share with. In B2B, you have something similar where like applications typically start with high-level collaboration models around roles and may- maybe sometimes attributes, but in general, it's roles. Right? If you're in Salesforce, you have specific permissions for a given role. And over time, as the application evolves and, and use cases evolve, and especially you get more into kind of like collaborative document or object sharing, sharing that authorization gets more and more complex. So I would say authentication is typically thing you do from day one and, and you kind of like evolve on one thread. And then as your product starts to get traction and fit, you, you start figuring out what other authorization capabilities you need. Kind of again, this, this is my take. I think this, this is going to be a big decade for authorization related features and and everyone's starting to think about authorization the way that they start to think about authentication in, in the last decade. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially as, as cloud services proliferate and trying to manage the authorization into the different systems that exist. So Okta acquired Auth0 for, I think, $6.5 billion, which is an amazing, amazing acquisition. How does Okta's product complement Auth0s? I kind of mentioned Auth0 is great. For developers and for developers building apps that are B2B or B2C, right? Like consumer apps or, or B2B apps. And when I say for developers, you know, it's not just for a developer. It's for a company, like a technology company building around a development team and like they have security folks. And, but, but it's meant for kind of like people that are building their own apps. And what Okta does is that we have a great product where we also target the workforce. And like, if you think about IT administrators and CIOs, those are to figure out who can use things or applications and who should be granted access. But for when you think about employees, the typical B2E scenario. And that's where there's a great complement, right? Because if you think about it from a market perspective, we cover B2E, B2B, and B2C. But at the same time, as we continue to evolve our platforms and we continue to kind of like integrate them, you can see very good synergies between the B2B side of what you can build without Zero and what you could empower B2E administrators to use. And, and there are a number of kind of like things that we're thinking about and, and again, we are going to likely explore in the next few years around what that means. Some of them were covered kind of like uh, by our CEO in, in the last Octane conference. And that's a topic that we're really excited about. Can you talk a little more about the early days of Auth0 when it was just 10 employees? 
Like what, what exactly did you guys focus on building from the, from the beginning days? How did you know what to build? What, what did you actually do as 10 employees from the start? Yeah. So the, the biggest thing was making it easy for developers to implement authentication for their applications. And if you think about it in those days, and I, I think in some ways still today, if, if you don't use a product, authentication is hard because you need to understand protocols. So unless you use a library or a product, you, you need to be an expert on what you're doing on what you're building. At the same time, it's security related. So any mistakes you make might be problematic from a security perspective. Making it easy means making it so that developers don't have to understand the complexities of anything that they're trying to do. In our case, again, we supported WSFED, SAML, OAuth as, as the protocol, for example. But at the same time, giving them the tools so that as they needed more and more complexity for that app, they would be able to, to get it. And that meant working a lot on the documentation, making the quick starts, they custom made, right? For example, if you use one of our quick starts and you were logged in, we would automatically pre-fill all of the values with like the, the secrets and, and the client IDs and, and all of that so that you could just copy paste those. The dashboard was very friendly. Uh, if you think about a typical B2B product, those aren't in general, or those didn't used to be. And I think things are changing now. They didn't have the best UX. And that's because, again, people thought about stickiness and that you wouldn't change them and like employees will just use anything you want. In our case, we really wanted it to be clear. And at the same time, we made everything API first, meaning that anything that you could do on the dashboard, you could actually also do through the APIs, which meant that you could do them as part of your CICD workflow. You could use automation. You could write automated tests for it. Uh, another big thing was that we, we had kind of like a, an extensibility mechanism where you could write Node.js code as part of your authentication pipeline from day one, meaning that a lot of developers that wanted specific functionality that we might not have had already in the product would implement it themselves. And a lot of those things, again, always thinking about the developer, thinking about how we could make their lives easier were, were what we really, really focused on. What was one win that you remember very clearly from the, from the early days? And actually, I think for a lot of founders, what may be even more interesting is were there any major losses that you remember that felt major at that time, but but now sort of have faded into the distance because it, it you know obviously the company continued to do well. So I I don't know if you have any anecdotes or anything that you could share there, but I think that would be pretty interesting for founders listening. Yeah, the, I, I have one that, that kind of like I think plays into one of the categories and, and has kind of like the, the counter effect in the other one. So one of our first customers, the big customers, enterprise customer was an insurance company and, and they wanted to run an on-premise version of Otsido, right? So Otsido back in the day, you could run it on the cloud, typical like SaaS hosted by us, but you could also run it on the cloud hosted in your own cloud. Let's say you had Azure or you had AWS, you gave us an account with very little permissions and we could just basically put it there. And then you could also run it on-prem. And, and the reason why it was built on-prem was precisely thinking about these customers. That was a huge win, right? Like very early, we got validation from a real company that needed this. I think one of the first, the, other, the next five enterprise customers, like a couple of others were either private clouds, as we call them, or on-premise, and, and those were huge. And interestingly enough, I, I think 
it was one of those wins that was very big at the time. And again, hindsight is 2020. So you can say, hey, because of the acquisition on the exit, it was a good decision. But interestingly, I don't think for a, a number of years we realized how much of a drag having to support on-premise and private cloud was because you get a number of wins, but it's very hard to scale that over time because you don't control on-premise for your customer, right? And it's even if you had like maybe the scheduling capabilities today that you have with like Kubernetes and the sorts, it's it's not the same, right? It's not your infra, you have to figure out like permissions and you're a startup, so you can't put everything in a contract. So it's not that trivial. And I think over time that restricted how, like the, it restricted the technologies that we could use. For example, we couldn't use Redis for a while because it was very hard to get customers to accept to run Redis on there because it was just another piece of software and more, more machinery and stuff. And that meant that the, the initial software stack that we had was all we had. For a while, we had to make sure that everything worked both on-prem and on the cloud. So everything was kind of like jump up into one machine. Um, I think we, sh we should have made kind of like a mental change a bit earlier than we did. I think we, we deprecated and we started thinking about deprecating some of those things. 2020, 2021, I think maybe in 2018, we should have said, hey, these things have brought us this far, but now the cost of keeping them around is too high. And the challenging thing about this type of decision, and I think it will happen or it can happen to any company, is that it's an opportunity cost decision where it's very hard to measure the opportunity cost because all you see is you see the dollars and the opportunities coming in from the on-prem, from the private cloud deals, and, and those, those are very measurable, right? It's very hard to go against that. It's very hard to say, hey, if we weren't building these capabilities, we could be doing these other things, which would get us these other customers, because it's like, it's a second or even a third order effect in some cases. And because you don't know what you don't know, it's very hard to make the case for that. Either you have to kind of like figure it out from metrics, like, hey, the margins aren't that great when we do these things. So we have to hire a lot more people, or you have to build kind of like a couple of like example cases, which is what we did saying, hey, because we have to do this, like this is how long this takes. This is how long it takes. But it, it takes, I think it, it takes a while for those decisions to be changed or undone because of inertia. For those first few customers, were you able to turn down, because, you know, I imagine, like you mentioned, on-prem revenue, right? I mean, that's that's still a bunch of, that's a major customer coming in saying, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars, right? That is a pretty amazing thing for an early stage company. But then you talk about how there's trade-offs around that. And so I'm wondering for those early customers, were you guys sort of all excited about just whatever customers that you could get at that time because you were trying to focus on making revenue, getting to the hands of customers, or were you kind of thinking in the back of your head, hey, this may not be the right fit, but we just need that revenue right now? So I, I can't, again, I, I can't speak for everyone, but at least from both what I, what I thought and at the same time, the conversations we had, this was just very good validation of the product that we were building because the, these companies were still using it. They were using it in very large setups. They were using it with development teams that gave us feedback that, that were 
kind of like very conscious about what they were doing. So we, we had the right audience, right? The audience was developer. And the vet was the cloud is going to grow. And if, if, with that mindset, the cloud is going to grow. So over time, if I have the right product, I'm going to get more of the cloud teams. And in the meantime, what I'm doing is I'm validating the product. It was definitely the right thing. And I, I, I think everyone back in the day thought about it like that. I think at least when I first started thinking about it differently was as I had a few years under my belt, kind of like running some of the platform teams, seeing the trade-offs that we had to do, seeing what we had to do for specific customers and some of the architectural decisions that we had to make. I, I, I started kind of like looking at the numbers and I was like, I don't think this, like the customers we have are large enough to continue being worth it, right? Because again, at the beginning, a lot of the on-prem and private cloud was a big part of the revenue. And I think, I don't remember the exact year, but maybe 2018, 2019, that was no longer the case by any means. And the challenging thing with developer products is that you don't want to break compatibility, right? This is not like a consumer app where you can just go make changes. It's like people are depending on your APIs, people expect your SLAs to be met. So you can't just go make these changes. It's it's a big decision in general. What what was it like for you in the as an early team member? So you know a lot of a lot of early employees talk about how you know even if you're an engineer, you're involved in sales conversations, you're involved in product conversations. You know some joke they're they're you know cleaning the office or they're bringing coffee to everybody. You know, but uh, I'm just curious, what was it like for you? Like, were you able to just say, hey, I'm just going to sit here, code, and focus on building the product? Or were you getting pulled in a number of different directions? I was I was getting pulled in a number of different directions. I think everyone was. I liked it. That, that's what I wanted by joining a startup. I, but for example, when I joined, I remember being asked, hey, do you want to work more on the kind of like engineering team or do you want to do kind of like more sales solutions, architecture stuff? And I, I picked the engineering side because I wanted to understand how the core of the product works so that I could do a bit of everything. The, the thing... I've always tried to do in my career is kind of like maximize my learning and startups, especially when they, they are successful, allow you to do that because they continue to grow and you continue to have opportunities and, and the more you've been around because of how compounding knowledge works, the more things you can do. But yeah, we were doing support daily, right? we did support in chat, we did support on Twitter, we did support anywhere we could. And it was very useful that that allowed us to implement features. Like someone asked for something and he said, hey, yeah, this makes sense. We talked about it with a couple of people. It's like an hour. It was in production. Um, we did, yeah, I did sales. I did like a couple of years after that, when I was kind of like doing engineering, I, I wrote part of the contracts for the, like the anything technical, which was again very interesting and like being in those conversations. Yeah, evangelism, helping with the marketing. We did everything. Some I think some people like it more than others, but at least from my side, it was great. I wouldn't have one. Yeah. That's a very cool ability to be able to learn all those different things in the beginning and 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 go into sales and then go into support have a close tight feedback loop with the customers i think the learning cadence that you get from something like that is just you know exponential versus if you were in a larger org where you may not get the ability to to be put into those different roles one thing you mentioned is that you're constantly learning you're constantly interested in new opportunities i i read a, actually a post of yours where you talked about you weren't necessarily looking for a management role but yet you still became the director of engineering at Auth0. So talk to us a little bit more about how that came about and why you made that decision to take that role. 
So it goes it goes back to the learning. I think twenty like late twenty fifteen, Matias, he was my manager. He was looking for someone to kind of like take the reins on the engineering side. He wanted to focus more on, on product, but he was also he, he also had design and security under him. So at that point, this was post series A. Um, he wanted to kind of like start dividing those functions. Totally typical, right? You have the technical co-founder, and, and, and they want to focus on kind of like a slice of the business. So he looked for a couple of folks externally. Some some things kind of like didn't work out. Like we we couldn't find the right person. And I think after like four or five months looking, yeah, four months, he, I remember he sent me like a link. Hey, what do you think, right? And, and it was like a comparison between like. BP engineering and CTO are like, what, what about this? And I started thinking about it. I made a list of things. It wasn't like a broken list. It was mostly like the things I enjoyed about it and the things that I was worried. And, and the way I kind of like took it was mo- mostly around the things I worried about from an Obsido perspective, right? Kind of like team player, hey, what if I don't do this right because it's the first time? Um, and at the end of the day, I was like, hey, if you're in, and like these are the things that I'm worried about. These are the things I'm going to need help with. I'm in because this is going to help me learn. This is going to give me a perspective that I wouldn't have. It's particularly interesting. I was yeah, 24, 25. I was in Argentina. So you know, remote is big now. It wasn't that big back in 2015, 2016. And, and having kind of like the responsibility, but at the same time, the opportunity to lead the engineering or for then a Series A, Series B startup that was growing very fast, building a product for developers, which means that if you're doing engineering, you can also do some product because you, you kind of like get into the mindset of the customer. Uh, it was too, too much of an opportunity to pass up, even, even if I wasn't thinking, oh, I really want to be a manager. I mean, how did you actually learn the skill set of moving from you know, IC work to now being a manager? Did you have mentors? Were you reading a lot? Or was it just trial by fire in the sense of, hey, whenever something comes up, I'm just going to deal with it in the best way that I can? So all of them. I, I had mentors. So Matias, a mentor. I, I reached out to a couple of folks in my network. I tried to, to talk to a lot of folks had more experience. I, I also ran into things the first time and like probably the first time they didn't go as, as good as I would have wanted them to. Um, I think that it was hard, right? It was the first startup for, for a lot of us and, and the first time building a product for a lot of us. So we were trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And I I think, again, in hindsight, you can say we were successful, but like I was there. I know the things that we messed up and the things that could have been a lot better. And there are lots of things where, for example, you would read something in a blog post. And one thing that I remember a lot about, and, and I think, Everyone was kind of like really, I would say, surprised about was like, remember the Spotify matrix on the teams? I don't remember what it was called, right? So they started saying, oh, this is how we work at Spotify and stuff like that. And we, we took some ideas from there. We actually implemented some of those and, and a lot of them worked. But the interesting thing was like a couple of years after that, Spotify came out and said, oh, this is not actually how we work. It's aspirational. So that was very interesting. And, and this was one of the things that was hard for us because, again, being here in Argentina, even if we had our investors networks, we knew some folks that were company advisors, which we talked to a lot. We didn't, I don't think we had as much contact with people that had been in the next stage as we would have liked. And that's one of the things that work with Matthias and I and, and a lot of folks from the company that have been there kind of like, are kind of like paying it both forward and backwards saying, hey, like, 
we know that this is challenging and, and we want to help the, the next batch of startups coming from LATAM and the continent because if you haven't done it before, you, you just can't see around the corners. Even if you've read everything, like you can't know what's likely going to happen. And, and just someone that has done it a couple of times, it helps. It makes a huge difference. It goes to show you, you never know what will work for, for somebody and not work for somebody else. The fact that that's an amazing story that Spotify came out later and said, well, actually, that's that's not how this goes, but it worked for you guys. That's very cool. So you were in the, in a management role for... I think three plus years, and then you made the decision to go back to being a principal engineer. And I'm wondering, why did you do that? And also from an org structure perspective, all of a sudden you go from, you know, the people you were directly managing and having one-on-ones with to, you know, now you're, you're working alongside of them. And so how did that shift work? And, and was it weird? Did it, did it work all right? How did you change how, how you worked or, or how did others change how they perceived you? I'm just curious, all the different aspects of that. So the, the first thing was the main reason for my decision was also kind of like learning rate growth. Right? It's, I wanted to learn faster. And what I started realizing in that director role is that the problems started to become more and more of the same after three years or so. Maybe at a, a bit of a larger scale, but the growth rate of the org goes down as the org grows. Right? It's like so. Maybe the first year you grow 100% and then 70%. So I did the projection with with my manager. He was the VP of engineering at the time. I was like, hey, if the org grows like this, which is huge, right? Like we don't even need to get there. This is how I expect a platform organization to grow because it should grow sublinearly if I'm doing my job right. These are not the challenges that I, I will want to be taking on. Not because they are not interesting, but because I think I can find larger challenges somewhere else. And, and that's kind of like how I started looking for alternatives. And one of the things that I always liked was this notion of, again, like, technical leadership, figuring out how our system should scale. I, I did a lot of that even as a director. And I had read, I think, Charity's blog post about, hey, the engineering management pendulum. So like it was easy to kind of like link people to that and say, hey, you should look at this, this is what I'm trying to do. And, and that's kind of like how I started thinking about it and, and made the change. In terms of the day-to-day, I think the most interesting thing was that it was actually a lot easier to collaborate with people because I tend to to have thoughts about, thing, about things around me. And, and, I, and I like providing feedback, especially again, like I usually take that teamwork mentality that we're, we're all in this together and hopefully this for the best. And I think that when I was a director, a lot of people were a bit more territorial because I was a director of engineering or a director of like the platform org. And they would not necessarily take feedback in the best way. Whereas as soon as I became an IC, I was like, I had no agenda, which I didn't before. Like, yeah, I did have an agenda. Like, hopefully, I'm serious, more successful. Um, so that was the biggest change for me by, by far. And the other good thing was that I was still able to be in that kind of like engineering leadership team with the VP, all the directors, which allowed me to continue learning and seeing a lot of the problems and helping with those problems, but being focused on kind of like more how do we scale, what sort of tech strategy on the day to day. Uh, you it, one thing you mentioned there actually was being the 
director of, of platform for some time. And I'm curious, I, I think I, I read somewhere that you led a big project that was around increasing the reliability and scalability of Auth0. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what that consisted of and also how what what was the impact or were you able to see the impact of that project on the org after you did it? Because I feel like sometimes platform teams are focused internally, right? And obviously, a lot of the a lot of the company is focused on external actions, right? Helping customers solve their pain points, but the platform team is helping enable the internal team to move faster to to deliver those things. And so I'm wondering, you know, did you see that ROI, that outcome happen as a result of what you worked on? Yeah, it, it was very, well, again, it's, it's hard to say, right? Maybe we, we didn't have incidents and we were lucky, but reliability and specifically small glitches in systems stopped, stopped happening as much as they used to. And I'm going to get into some examples. So one of the benefits I had was that when I was director of the platform or I, I still had coded a lot of the core system, I understand, I understand the protocols, I understand how how everything works from like a broad perspective, like the security of the, like not the security, but the, the exchange perspective of like how each of the protocols works, what requests are done. And at the same time, how we implement them in the product and all, all the way to how we fund that in the, in the infrastructure. So I had that advantage. And one of the things we had in our platform was we had kind of like a, an SRE team, which was a few folks that had a software background that, that were really interested in kind of like performance, reliability, infrastructure work and automating stuff. So what we did was we, this was kind of like, I think, late 2018. Well, we, we had a, a few of these, but like the, the major one was when we started saying, hey, we are still doing things, thinking about on-prem when we have very large customers, for example, Atlassian became a customer at one point. And, and these customers are cloud customers and they need different reliability requirements and the ones that uh, we can give them if we keep doing these things. So we did very simple things. If you think about it both retroactively, but also when we were in that moment, that's how we thought about it, that were aimed at fixing the issues we had. So for example, we had issues because one of the APIs, which was related to user management, wasn't as reliable as it should be. And the problem is that the failure domain for that API was the same as the failure domain for everything else because it, it was part of a monolith. The, the thing is, it didn't have to be, right? Like you could run the user's code independently. It was, I would say, relatively well-structured. So we said, hey, let's take this out into a library. Let's abstract that. And, and all we did, for example, was we started running in a separate process. That's it. Users runs in one process and everything else runs in another process. That made a huge difference. Then we made a bunch of changes to how we deploy code because another thing, thing we saw was, and, and this came from kind of like the notion of the accelerate metrics and which now they have a different name and there's a much longer paper, but essentially if you can deploy code often with a low amount of errors that allows you to iterate fast, which means that you have an edge over your competition or at least you don't lose an edge. And, and that's a, a thing that we've always believed in. We, we always deploy it multiple times a day. So if we can make those deploys less likely to fail, we're going to do it. And that's when we move from like a rolling deployment model to kind of like green-blue deployments with some like percentage of traffic being routed to, to different nodes. So that was a big thing that we did. I mean, also a huge advantage. Deployments were a lot faster because of the way we started rolling things out with the new API APIs and, uh, and AMI, sorry. Um, and at the same time, 
whenever we, we did one of these, we could quickly roll back to the previous version. So it was it was able to do. And then a number of the other things we did there was we, we tuned a bunch of things at the database level so that whenever we had kind of like specific spikes, we, we would essentially kind of like protect from other noisy neighbors in a, in a multi-tenant environment. And, and that was kind of like, again, we, we, we had kind of like efforts at different points in time to improve reliability besides the typical work on reliability. But that was one where we changed the mindset of, hey, we're doing this for everyone in the same way and, and taking that baggage from that private cloud on-premise and saying, this is not how we should be doing this. This is another type of system. We, are the, we can't deploy multiple times a day or multiple times an hour and do things with an on-premise mindset where we deploy one time a day because that's not going to, to work. So I think those were kind of like the main things there. We had a bunch of other initiatives around improving how like any environment environment is kind of like an odd zero isolation environment where you can just run all of the services there. So making sure that those work and, and like how they scale and, and like auto scaling and stuff like that. Uh, because if you think about it again, with on-premise, you can't auto scale. So for a while we, we had kind of like different configurations where like for on-prem you do this thing, but for the cloud you do this other thing. So kind of like those little things which are all obvious uh, were good. I think uh, a good thing and, and I think it's still good until today. We never bought into the microservices hype where like everyone's like, oh, we need to do microservices and we need to, um, and now we're coming back, right? So now it's like, oh, you don't need microservices. Maybe microservices are good. And so it's, it's good that we didn't buy into it. I, I think, again, a few of the folks that were there from the early days and that were leading some of these uh, initiatives, we, we were always saying like, oh, our problem is not that we have more or less services, right? And, I think the industry tends to go towards those solutions, especially as you bring people from the outside because they don't have expertise on the specific system. And when you have expertise on the system, you know what the levers to pull are to make things better. One question I have on, you mentioned the scalability and, and fine-tuning for the nosy neighbor problem for, for the databases. When you talk about auto-scaling and matching like something like Atlassian size of scale, what how do you even know, hey, here's how we're going to scale out, you know, the database or, or the compute clusters or whatever that you were using, how'd you figure out what to do there? Because now people would probably say, hey, we'll just use you know a serverless function or there's even auto-scaling just built into the AWS stack, essentially. Yeah, the, so the AWS stack, when we started doing this, had auto-scaling for the kind of like load balancer compute part of, uh, part of things. So if you said, hey, I want to auto-scale, we did it. We had typical metrics like CPU and memory that we looked at, but we also looked at like requests per second. And the good thing that like, we, we also did this kind of like per service, right? So it's, we didn't have microservices, but we did have some services. So for example, we had a service called BAAS, which was Bcrypt as a service. And all it did was password hashing. And the interesting thing, for example, about password hashing is that it's very CPU intensive for security reasons, it completely blocks anything else that you're doing on, on that machine and it block, blocks all your calls. So we couldn't do that in the same box. And, and we essentially had a fleet of machines that kind of like as traffic in terms of like people signing in or people signing up went up or down during the day, we could kind of like spin up more or less of those services. The storage part was never out of scale, right? So what we typically did was we run over provisioned as, as the number of customers that we had in an environment grew we would grow the database in that environment. 
And part of our strategy, this, this is one of the things that I focus on in like when I became an IC was like how we grow past that, right? Because if you think about it, typically B2C products have to go towards kind of like a sharding infrastructure because they want one large database where they can host all of the consumers because those consumers might all have relationships between each other. But if, but if you think about B2B products, that's not the case, right? Your B2B customers typically want isolation. There's not a lot of sharing between them. So our strategy was a bit different. It, it's kind of like similar to the, the strategy that Okta takes, and, and in some cases, even the strategy of how AWS scales, which is by cell, and when we call it environment. So for example, we have multiple environments in the United States, US1, US2, US3, US4, all of those are public. And we also have a lot of environments that are private, dedicated environments, right? And that allows us to scale because at most we can have, worst case scenario, we can have one customer that takes up a whole environment. But from a scaling perspective, that might be thousands of requests per second that are just dedicated for that one customer, which is definitely doable. And for everyone else, if, if they can take it, we kind of like bundle them into a single environment where it's a multi-tenant environment. I'm curious, what, what were the largest challenges that you remember along the journey? Like, were there anything specific to phase shifts of the company that could be employee count, that could be revenue, that could be number of customers, or anything else that you were just like, wow, this was, you know, we just entered a whole new world, a whole new realm, and now I have to relearn everything or, or not relearn everything, but relearn skill sets, relearn how to adjust to this new phase of, of growth. So I think there are two parts. I think that the biggest challenge, and, and I kind of alluded to it, was that a lot of the folks in the early years, even those with a lot of experience, for us, it was the first startup. We were also remote very early on. And a lot of us were in South America, which meant that again, like a lot of these networking things and like meeting people for coffee and learning from them. It was very hard, right? We had to rely a lot on like our investors network and our advisors, but just us. And that was tough. I mean, I think it would have been a lot easier if we had had either more experience or if we had been kind of like in a city with a bit more kind of like entrepreneurial spirit and like people with, with those learnings. Um, in terms of inflection points, I think there were a few. A big one was for going from 2015 to 2016. We went from you know, like having engineers working on projects to thinking as product teams. So we said, hey, we're going to have, I think it was like four or five teams. And it's like one of them is going to focus on the SDKs. Another one is going to focus on the authentication uh, part. Another one is going to focus on all of the kind of like management of the account and the dashboard. So that was a big change. It didn't necessarily require new skills, but it was a, a huge overhaul of how we work and the people we hired and how we hired and how we organized and how we started planning. Because that, that, that was when we started, we stopped saying, hey, we have a gun chart where everyone kind of like can do anything. And we went more for, hey, this, each team has a backlog and, and we're going to have like people that are dedicated to thinking about the product for that team. So that was a big change. Atlassian was another big change, kind of like 2016, 2017 because they were very large compared to all of the other customers that we have, which meant that for us, it was fantastic. It meant that we would learn a lot. It meant that we would be able to push kind of like the scale of our system. But at the same time, in some cases, we were running from behind and we had to do stuff for them. The good thing is that once anything we did for them from a 
scaling perspective, latency perspective, reliability perspective, it worked for everyone. So that was great. Now, from a feature perspective, some of the features we built for them were just for them. That wasn't ideal because these are things that maybe other customers didn't have. That's a trade-off from, from a B2B perspective. And I think in the other big one was in 20, I think it was 2018, mid-2018, we had a shift where part of the platform organization, not all of the platform organization, went under a different exec, separate from like the VP of engineering. And that created kind of like some of the, the well-known kind of like dev op silos and, and they were kind of like throwing things over the wall. Um, that was tough for, I think it took a year where it, would actually, it actually came back. So it went over to someone else for a year and then it came back because it was very hard to work across those functions across different orgs. I think you actually wrote something about solving that problem or, or trying to solve that problem where you were just like, hey, there's a major alignment problem that we had. And so we went about creating this this DNA group, which I, I forget what the acronym stands for, but to, to basically help with that decision process and what you just mentioned, those, those silos and losing feedback between the teams. Talk, about, talk a little bit more about how you did that and, and, and also why it was important in terms of making sure that people understood how these decisions would be made. Yeah, so I think, so DNA was, stood for design and architecture and I don't think it was the ideal start for that team, but again, like those things never start in, in the most ideal way. So what we had was, and we had these two separate orgs. One of them was trying to build some, not all of the platform components. And the other one was trying to build kind of like the product and, and other product platform components. But there was a big disconnect in how the product worked, right? Like what's the business? And like this thing you, you mentioned earlier around platform teams typically being internal facing and not knowing the product that wasn't the case for us before because a lot of the folks we had in the platform org like me like a few others were there early so we knew kind of like both the product and the platform we lost that so dna was starting to bring some of that back to the table in a way where the platform teams could understand the challenges that we had building this product, right? Like, hey, like the, the notion of on-premise or, hey, why are some authentication transactions more or less stateful than others and what type of databases might we need and how do we scale that? And on the other hand, kind of like trying to bring a lot of the things that the platform teams were building over to the product teams to say, hey, like these are the databases choices that you have today and these are the database choices that you're going to have maybe in a year or so. And like, this is how you should be thinking about choosing technologies. This is how you should be thinking about metrics and deployments. So we started getting together, making some of these things. That, and in many cases, they were very, I would say, implicit, but very informal. And we started writing a lot of these down. On, on some of them, we, we made kind of like new decisions and we started sharing them. I think it worked in some cases, but it still required kind of like managers and even directors to kind of like push people to go look at those decisions. And, and a big signal of that was that we would get documents to review as part of that team, kind of like an RFC, hey, what do you think about this? Give us feedback. And it was very clear that those documents were not following the guidance that we, we were saying, hey, like you should be looking at these technologies or this is how you should be thinking about systems. So that, that took a while. Uh, it got a bit better when kind of like the reorg was undone. So again, everything kind of like was bundled back in and, and we had kind of like just one team. I think my main learning from, 
from such a team, and, and we still have that kind of like a similar team in the kind of like Auth0 or within Opta or like what we call customer identity cloud, there is still the DNA slash architecture team. I think the biggest challenge is if, if you're not empowered at the engineering leadership level so that people know, hey, this is what I should be going for review and like the, the feedback that I'm giving is important, uh, it's it's not good. And, and we have very inconsistent levels of, kind of like agreement there. Some teams, they, they really like collaborating with that group and some teams did. Like they, they would not send things or when they, whenever they send things, they, they would do it reluctantly. Uh, again, I, I, there are many reasons why that can happen. Like you, you don't want to get feedback or you might disagree with the guidance. But the reality is that if, if you're not empowered, at the end of the day, you're just going to be kind of like chasing different teams so that eventually they converge on a vision. And that's not what was happening. I think more towards like 2020, when we, we sat down, we said, hey, this is our vision. This is how we're going to scale. This is our environment. This is the technology that started happening a lot more. And kind of like it's been a bit better since. That's a huge endeavor and really hard to bring about that change. But uh, amazing that uh, you were empowered and the, the whole team were empowered to make those changes to fix those problems. You know, I, I'd love to shift the focus a little bit to what, what you're doing today, which I think you're, you're focused on Auth0 Lab, which when I hear that, whenever I hear Lab, I think, you know, cool new research projects, new product development, areas like that. And so what, what have the, been those new areas that you're focused on? And, and maybe just t tell us a little bit briefly about each of those things that you're working on. I joke that we, we have the best job in, in the SaaS industry, right? We, we can research what the future of like the, the identity industry looks like in, in a great team with very smart people. And the way we do that is we, we pick a topic from like a topic cloud that we have and we look at what should we be doing for our customers in so that maybe in the next 18 months, two years, we decide whether we should be investing in an area or not. So it's definitely not short term. It's what should we be adding to the company's roadmap two years from now. And in 2021, we did that with a project called Odd Zero FGA, which is kind of like how, how you and I met. We implemented the Google Zanzibar paper, which is a paper around how Google internally has a system called Zanzibar that they use to, to make authorization decisions. So back to that authorization topic that we talked about early in the conversation. That one has turned out to be kind of like a good idea so far. We have seen very good traction with prospective customers that are about to start using the service in early 2023. So again, like that was an experiment in 21, got transferred over to the product organization, product engineering delivery organization in 22, and now it's, it's starting to see the light of day in 23. And a very good thing is that the team made the core of that Auth0 FGA available as OpenFGA, which is a, a CNCF project now. So it's, it's very exciting to not just have the possibility of kind of like contributing to a new product and capability for developers to solve kind of like define your authorization model and, and ask authorization questions, but at the same time, have an open source project where people can contribute back their feedback, their learning so that we can continue kind of like moving the, the industry forward from a, an authorization perspective. And then in 2022, 
we focus on a couple of things. We, we did a small experiment with Web3 and identity, and, and we have a marketplace category in the Odd Zero marketplace for Web3 where people can play around with that. But the main focus was what we call verifiable digital credentials. And you can think about it as a digital passport or a digital driver's license and anything that you would hold on your phone in kind of like a wallet application that you can go present anywhere. And in order to verify it, they have to just check a cryptographic signature. So this is kind of like similar to like the Apple wallet and the QR code at the airport. But if you think about it, when they scan your QR code, they have to go back to a database somewhere and check that your ticket exists and that it was issued by the right company and so on, and it's it's approved by FAA and stuff. Whereas if you think about it from a cryptographic perspective, you can do all of that fairly stateless. You only need kind of like to trust the, the public keys of, of all of the issuers that you trust. And it's a topic that we are very excited about. We think digital credentials are going to be a big thing. We are not sure what format digital credentials will take in the future. That, that's something that we were still unsure about. But what we did was we released a POC in what we call our experimental environment. And we've opened it up so that in 2023, we're going to be working with existing customers and prospects to explore their use cases on, on issuing and verifying these verifiable credentials. You're working on the edge of future products. That is a very, very cool opportunity. And I, I imagine a lot of developers would be excited to join join your team there because that, that sounds that sounds very fun. You know, to, to wrap things up here, we have two questions that we ask everyone on Software Snack Bites. So the first question would be, what's your favorite technology or, or application or, or whatever that you've played with or researched recently and why? So I, I looked at a thing called Zero Knowledge Proofs. And I'm, I'm really excited about them. Zero knowledge proofs are informally, because this is not the formal way to explain it, but they are a way to prove that you know a fact without showing what the fact is. For example, I can tell you that I know where Walto is without saying where they are, or I can also tell you that I'm over 18 without telling you my birthday. And, and this is very interesting in, in, in a lot of scenarios around privacy because in many cases you just want to prove those facts which are typically boolean predicates but you don't want to disclose your source of information right maybe i just want to tell you that i live in california but i don't want you to have my home address um, and those kind of like privacy preserving mechanisms are very interesting and, and i think zero knowledge proofs um, have been around for a while from a, kind of like a research perspective and, and we're getting to the point where the cryptography is still fairly new. And, and again, with any new cryptography, you have to be careful, but it's a technique that can be very useful for, for privacy preserving information presentation. I love that. And then the final question is, what's your favorite snack? My favorite snack is called Vanette. It's, it's a, a sweet thing we have here in, in Argentina. So it's, it's filled with a thing called, it's kind of like, sweeter caramel okay very sweet and surrounded by like dark chocolate it's the best i love it i i rarely get those but but it's amazing all right when i'm in argentina that's what that's what we're going to get well thank you for for all the knowledge you shared today damien and just an incredible journey and i think still a lot to come especially with with all that you're building on the lab side where where can people find you if they'd like to get in touch my my Twitter is 
at the Schenkelman, so first, name, first letter of my name and then my last name. That's I'm probably active there. I think my DMs are open, and that's probably the best way to, to reach out if, if you have anything that you want to chat about. Got it. And we'll post also your personal blog and and some other resources to some of the talks you've done at Auth0 as well in the show notes here. So if anybody wants to listen to Damien's work before reaching out to him, we'd be we'd be happy to do that.